bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. I'm Bertha Wedeling, Editor-in-Chief of Bits and Pretzels. And this is a new, and in this case, interstellar episode of our podcast. Serial founder and Tesla CEO Elon Musk has long outgrown any ideas of anchoring his visions on Earth. With SpaceX and NASA, the next notch on his achievement scale has been conceived. For the first time in history, a private company, SpaceX, successfully sent two U.S. astronauts to the International Space Station, ISS. While NASA abandoned its shuttle program nine years ago and, like Europe, had to rely on Russian Soyuz rockets, the stars of space-gazing entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and many more have risen. Among them, my guest today, Will Marshall. He is the co-founder and CEO of Planet, which has built the largest fleet of satellites the world has ever seen. Each one covers an image of more than two million square kilometers per day. So that's more than the area of Germany. His startup is operating out of Berlin and San Francisco, where we've met. He works closely with Elon Musk and his satellite images serve governments, researchers and farmers. In this episode, we are talking about how Will built his space company, how he got Google to buy into his startup and about his vision to index the world like Google has indexed the internet to make it searchable. And like always, we've discussed what other entrepreneurs can learn from Will's experiences. The biggest thing that distinguishes successful entrepreneurs and unsuccessful ones is not the idea, it's not the timing, it's not the money, it's whether or not they stick to it. I mean, the number of people that said to me and my co-founders and to our company in general that it's impossible to do all of this is, you know, they're a dime a dozen, as they say in America, like there's many of them. Well, thanks for coming on the Bits and Presses podcast. No problem. I'm happy to be here. So it's fair to say that you operate one of the largest fleets of satellites uh, that's out in space. But how did you come up with this idea to go into this field as an entrepreneur in the first place? Yeah, so indeed, it's the largest operating satellite fleet in, in history. And um, what, what made the, my mind up on this was all to do with the star stars were so aligned on how small satellite technology could help sustainability of the planet, how we can use little satellites to take care of the most important spacecraft we have, which is the Earth, which is also a spacecraft hurtling around the sun. And we realized that by imaging it more regularly, we could help have the information that helps us to manage that planet. Why satellites? Well, satellites, you, 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 you get the bird's eye view of what's going on. And in fact, a common misconception uh, about this, that people are like, oh my God, we've got to fix the, plan uh, the challenges on the Earth. Why on Earth would we do anything off Earth? Why would we ever go to space until we've solved all the problems on the Earth? But that misunderstands that actually going off the Earth has helped us understand the Earth tremendously. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really until we sent probes to Venus that discovered the runaway greenhouse effect there that had been going on for some time that we really started thinking, whoa, wait a second, maybe this could affect the Earth. It wasn't until we sent satellites into space that we've discovered the hole in the ozone layer that was being caused by CFCs uh, that then led to the changes in refrigerators and other technology that now was to fix that. It's a bit like you can't understand your own country 
until you go to another country and then you go, oh, 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 right. Ours right. is like this. Our in, culture in, is like that. So very practically speaking, satellites, because of their height and altitude and their speed, can cover vast territories of land. So a satellite, each one of our satellites covers uh, and images more than 2 million square kilometers per day. So that's more than the area of Germany per day per satellite. And obviously, you can't do that with a drone or a plane uh, or any other technology. So for scanning the planet, they're the optimal tool. And I think BirdView, it's really a good num name for this because your satellites are called DAFs, right? Yeah, that's right. So talk about, you know, the size of it and why you thought, oh, this like like shoebox size is the right size. Talk about like all the iteration you went through from prototype mm -hmm. to prototype until you came up with, you know, this specific shape. Yeah, so the satellites, yeah, we do them, call them doves. And that was sort of to take the piss out of the government uh, missions, which were often named after birds, but birds of prey. So eagle, swoop, kill, kestrel, eye, cool. spy, or whatever. And we were like, no, these have a peaceful mission. So we call them doves, um, sort of to a little bit of a twist on that. And um, the, the size and form factor was a form factor that was being developed, actually pioneered by Stanford University and San Luis Obispo uh, University um, there down in Southern California, which, which basically helped to pioneer this form factor. We recognized that in the CubeSat form factor, which is a 10 by 10 by 30, centimeter volume that we could put a big enough camera to image the earth if we flew low at about three meter resolution which would be sufficient to see a tree and we, this is the canonical example we thought if we could scan the whole earth and see any tree that gets knocked down then we could stop illegal deforestation in the act rather than having to wait until the end of the year and seeing a big hole in the Amazon. If we can catch it in the act, then we can stop it. Um, so this is the sort of, it was, resolution is intrinsically related to the volume and we could just about get to that resolution in this volume. So it was a perfect way of getting going. Do you see any effect of the coronavirus? Actually, we do. We obviously can't see the virus uh, obviously itself. Obviously not. Um, but we Empty supermarkets. No, absolutely. A New York Times did a piece where they showed uh, uh, various changes in, in, in activity in airports and output from uh, car factories and various other things that were being affected by the coronavirus. So obviously the macroscopic implications, not the virus itself. Interesting. Talking about impact, you talked about sustainability, the cutdown of trees, but obviously it's also a business model that Absolutely. you're establishing. So Absolutely. talk about that and talk about your different, you know, you have several customers, you mentioned journalists, you also work with the government, with farmers. So talk about the different business models and how you actually build it. Absolutely. Yeah, Planet is a business and uh, we would we very much see that there was synergy when we started it between the sustainability pieces and the business pieces. And let me just say how Planet fits into the broader economic trends in the biggest sense first, um, before I get into the specific um, vertical markets that we speak to. The first big trend that's happening in the world today is different industries are digitizing. That means... Um, agriculture and transportation and medicine and various other industries are undergoing a digital transformation. As they take in big data and AI, they are enabling them to become more efficient with big savings. 
Our data is very much set up to help a lot of those industries, less so in medicine, but a lot in transport, uh, forest management, insurance, um, agriculture. And the other big trend that we fit in is sustainability. And sustainability goes from something that is thought of as a second tier priority for governments that they placate to the first priority, as we see with the Green New, New Green Deal in the EU, uh, where they're spending almost a quarter of the EU budget over the next phase on sustainability. Sustainability. So you actually, you make a business out of absolutely. Sustainability. Mm-hmm. As, uh, that, what is the next step on that? Well, every, they have to have regulations to enforce certain policies on pollutions, on uh, things like that. Well, what do they need to enforce those policies? They need data. Um, the next thing is the f- banks need to issue green bonds. Well, how do you issue green bonds? You have to measure and, and check that the, 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 the bonds are, uh, are tied to green and sustainably sourced what, uh, whatever um, commodities. Um, and uh, when it comes to uh, companies and doing their ESG metrics, so their environmental social governance uh, metrics, um, which they all need to do, and keep track of, again, how do they measure their supply chains and all these things? So we plan it as is a data company, a big data company that fits into these two big trends. But now let me just answer your question a little bit more specifically on, so with the big areas that we've gone into so far in agriculture, um, maps, governments, and now forestry. Uh, so in agriculture, we can uh, l- literally in each picture, it's not just a pretty picture of the farm field, we can tell the crop yield and type. Mm-hmm. So we can say this is wheat and it's doing this well. And this area of the field is not doing so well. And so it can help them imp- the farmer improve efficiency. Mm-hmm. So by adding fertilizer over here or adding water right, over there right. or harvesting earlier or later. This is called precision agriculture. It's the mm-hmm. digitization of the agriculture industry. We can say sort of improve crop yields by 20 to 40%, which is a big deal for a huge industry like agriculture. Mm-hmm. And it interrelates with sustainability because we in this crunch between human population growth and diets and the rest of the land being available for other species, we have the efficient use of land for crops is super important for um, for that collision course. So anyway, that agriculture is one mapping. So we work with companies like Google that use the, like our data to also update an investor maps. in your They are company. also a, a, a shareholder in Planet. Yes, and then. Um, governments who use it for a wide range of things from disaster response through to border security mm-hmm. through to um, intelligence. Um, so disaster response, things like f- after floods, fires, earthquakes, um, uh, 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 then, um, yeah, uh, we, we work with border security like um, coast guards um, monitoring for illegal shipping mm-hmm. and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you deal, I mean... Working with governments, working with security agencies. Yes. How do you deal with the co- political implications of your work? Well, we have thought a lot, firstly, and very carefully about um, who we're working with and why. Mm-hmm. And we've taken some important principles that we think ensure uh, that we do good. Firstly, we have picked a technology that we think is bent towards doing good. At this resolution, for example, you can't really see a person, so you can't really get into personal privacy. At this resolution, you can't really get into military significant secrets. It's really bent towards the wide-scale change, agriculture, forests, land use change, urbanization, things like that, shipping. 
um, in the big sense, not to which sort of missile is this or this privacy implication. That doesn't mean it hasn't got any bad use cases, but it's very much bent towards good. Secondly, we have a principle, by the way, unlike any other Earth imaging company, that we will never sell to one actor and not sell that same image to another actor. Okay. We will never do exclusivity, that is. Mm-hmm. So that means if 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 Reuters asks for the image and um, the Indian government asks for the image, we'll supply it to both. Mm-hmm. And and that we think that democratization of access to the imagery promotes peace and security as well as sustainability. Are there customers where you say, oh, we would never work with Absolutely. them? I don't know, Chinese espionage, for example? Yes, if Mr. Chinese espionage comes to us. No, so we, we abide by regulations of, um, firstly, US and EU law, um, which ban certain entities. There's a list of like actors China? that we can't work with. No, um, uh, like uh, terrorist organizations in okay, certain countries right. like mm-hmm. Iran or mm-hmm. North Korea mm-hmm. uh, that we cannot work with. Mm-hmm. Just like anyone mm-hmm. cannot work with them, actually, under international or, right. uh, I mean, under right. the legal okay. law. We yeah. also uh, look to UN sanction lists, things mm-hmm. like this. Secondly, we have an ethics committee internally within Planet that looks at every case. And if there's a worrisome case, they can flag it. And how many How many cases got flagged? Oh, many. Um, at least half a dozen. Um, and out of? We've reviewed, out of, uh, I would say, hundreds. Um, so, you know, a couple of percent, I would guess. Um, and then we review them. And sometimes we decide to go ahead. Sometimes we say no. And sometimes we say yes, if. <laughs> and, and, but we, we are, it's a tricky situation. We're not trying to play God as people talk about it with technology too much. We want to get everyone access to the data if they can. Generally, as a principle, we think democratizing breeds peace and security. Mm-hmm. However, um, we also want to avoid the deliberate harmful use of our data um, that, that could exacerbate a particular, um, say, contravening of the Geneva Conventions in a war situation, right. for example. Right. I mean, it's the same with, you know, all new technology, AI or, or facial recognition. Yeah. It's all about how you use it uh, in, in the field. When I talk to companies about how they think about it, and many companies actually introduce these kind of ethics boards mm-hmm. for, you know, AI mm-hmm. or facial recognition, which is like kind of discussed a lot right now at this point as well. It's also a question of how you actually make sure that, you know, your technology in yes. the hand of a customer is not like misused or misguidedly used. So how do you think about this and how do you make that you're sure of that? Yeah, well... The the, the 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 verification of how entities use our data is tricky, right? Because we, we, we're a small organization and we haven't got a big police force around the world checking how people use our data, sure. for sure. Um, so there's limited means in that sense, but we do have things like audit rights. And and then, of course, we rely on the fact that the, the, there are people that they've signed up to an agreement not to use it for X purposes. And if they violate that, somebody in their organization might tell us, you know. And so there's other ways of getting around this. But I will say, just to your former point, um, I think there's a all technology can be used for good and bad. Everyone always gets on this and understands this first point. But... A second point that I think is equally important to the to how technology is used is picking the technology in the first place and focusing time on those technologies that have more good uses than bad uses. 
you mentioned facial recognition. I actually think that's a case where you could make the argument that the net negative implications is is more than the net positive implications. Mm-hmm. A bit like nuclear technology, which although there's good implications, obviously, like medical advances, the nuclear weapon side of it so overwhelms um, the negative. I think the negative implications far outweigh the positive. So if I could get rid of nuclear technology in a mm-hmm. snap, I would. Mm-hmm. Same with uh, facial recognition technology, potentially. Mm-hmm. Technology entrepreneurs need to vote with their feet and pick technologies that are bent towards helping the world and and then actively steer them to do so. So step number one is pick the technology. So, you know, if I was a machine learning person, I wouldn't go into facial recognition. I would go into, for example, we use similar kinds of algorithms to detect objects in our imagery, like trees or Mm -hmm. roads or buildings or ships or what have you. And I think that has a generally positive implication. Again, I'm not saying it's all good, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's pretty much bent towards that. And so that vote in of itself helps a lot. Right. As somebody who has this bird view on planet Earth, mm-hmm. to your technology, and also yeah. to thinking about the impact of all these technology. What do you think, on a broader perspective, is the role of entrepreneurs in, you know, creating better impact in using technology for, for good impact. causes and for impact? Well, uh, firstly, uh, I, I think that there is a huge amount uh, to be done on the planet. There's, there's these huge challenges, like as stated by the roughly summarized the world's challenges in the sustainable development goals of the UN. Those 17 goals represent those challenges. So the first thing I would say to an entrepreneur is pick one of those, pick a technology that's going to help at least one of those goals. And if it's not, you've probably got the wrong uh, goal in mind. Secondly, I would say that the uh, a lot of these challenges are sociological, not technological, um, meaning that the dominant challenge is a policy. Um, the, we already know what's happening with the climate. We already know we need to transition to renewable energies. It's a policy question, not a technology question. We, know, we have the technology to have solar arrays. So it's, we can push on that, but it's dominated by a sociological question. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean technology entrepreneurs don't have a role to play to make it more efficient. Obviously, I've chosen as an example, and I'd be hypocritical to say otherwise, I've chosen a technology. But that's because I really think that it can help, for example, agricultural yields in Africa or stopping deforestation. I've really targeted that technology. And I think a lot of technologies get focused on the technology, not on the problem they're trying to solve. And they try to create technology that might have a solution. So we need to tie it really closely. Mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. massive opportunity there. If you if, if you look at all those problems, what can you do with your skill set to maximally right. help them? Right. I mean, it's interesting. You know, people talk for years around, you know, about the question of we have to travel less yeah. because of carbon emissions. And now we have this virus. That's true. Around, and That's people right. finally do what's, what's correct. It, Talking about, you know, psychology. Absolutely. Uh, That's why I'm mentioning that. That's right. I mean, it's, uh, of course, no one wishes the coronavirus to Obviously exist. But, yeah. but there are small silver lining to right. it, which is less uh, uh, travel. Um, and, it, and also just... Just the idea of confronting a, a, a crisis and that we can get through and we can plan and systematically change our behavior. That, you know, uh, there was an, an article I read the other day, 7 million people a year die from pollution, which is just one of the many aspects of the challenges to do with climate and the environment changes that humans are causing. 
yet 3,000 people die of coronavirus and suddenly it's a big thing. If those 7 million people were to die all at once in one location, that would make the news, you know? And that's just one, that's the tip of the iceberg of all the challenges we're facing. So we do have a climate emergency and we have an environmental emergency and we need to do something about it. And this is, you know, one of which is stop flying so much, but there's many other things. We have to change our diets and we have to go um, and turn off all those coal power plants and we have to have regenerative agriculture that saps down the uh, the carbon and, and enables more wildlife to be on it mm-hmm. and we have to stop deforestation. Those are the main things. No, right? yeah. But this sort of coronavirus situation can help get us used to how we change behavior. We can change behavior. Look, no one's flying. <laughs> we just changed our behavior. No, We've yeah. got that and a few other things mm-hmm. we need to do all together, mm-hmm. collectively. Yeah. So maybe it will help sharpen our minds on how we can confront what is a much, much bigger emergency than coronavirus. No, no. We've wiped out half of the species and animals on the earth. That's what the UN said basically last mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. Uh, with a biodiversity report. Much more than half by numbers, less than half by species. This is a massive calamity and we need to solve it. Where's that? Where, uh, there we need heads of state changing policies, making emergency meetings for that. Right. Coming back to the space industry that you are part of and um, coming back to the privatization of the space industry sure. that's going on for, for quite a while. So we saw the first rockets, you know, being re- reused, which was a big step that kind of yep. Elon Musk pushed forward. Then we have Jeff Bezos. He wants to send tourists up into space. How do you look at, you know, this this development and what do you think is the next steps from your perspective as somebody who's like kind of part of, of this development? Well, firstly, I think it's extremely exciting. I mean, we really are seeing a renaissance in space technology. Many people track it, but for those that don't, I mean, the, you know, the, the rocket developments are have dramatically reduced uh, launch costs now. Um, the satellite developments that ourselves and others have developed have dramatically changed the capability you can put in a small spacecraft and therefore the capabilities that can be done in space, um, uh, you know, by orders of magnitude. Um, I mean, launch costs may have come down sort of 5x. Um, satellite costs per, for the same capability have come down maybe 100x. So those are big changes to an industry, right? Now, um so what I'm excited about is the green field of opportunities to exploit that to benefit life on the Earth. Whether that's, so you don't want to go to space. You, you think we should stay on planet Earth. I, I'm excited about exploration too, but I don't think that's where the priority lies for now. Almost all the life, and including all, almost all the humans, apart from a few on the International Space Station, are here. And that's going to be the case for some time, no matter what. Um, and, uh, w- you know, I really think our priority should be this planet. Um, and now we can do things like um, blanket the uh, the world with internet from space to help give the the couple of billion people that don't have internet internet access. Uh, we can. You don't even have internet access in some areas in the Bay Area. There we go. There we go. So they can help fix it here too. Um, <laughs> and it's not just the people in the third world. No, no, countries. absolutely, like no, no. Well, well, sometimes the US is a bit Bay of a third world area. country. So, um, right, that's true. <laughs> in yeah. some senses, uh, like not giving uh, poor people <laughs> healthcare, etc. Right, um, but. Um, 
and of course, imaging the planet every day and all the benefits that that can provide. Um, I think there is a tertiary benefit of helping exploration. And I am excited about that too. I don't think that's where we should put most of our resources. But it is true that the costs of putting up a settlement off Earth have gone down equivalently, sort of maybe a factor of 100 uh, since NASA was estimating just a, f- a decade ago that it would cost about a few hundred billion dollars to put a settlement on the moon, which is the obvious place that we would next put a settlement. Um, and now the estimates are down. I, I helped with some of these with some colleagues, just down to a couple of billion dollars. And to back up all of life and to have a, a place that we push off to further exploration, to have a place where we evolve and think through different social governance systems, different property rights concepts and things like that, it's really exciting and tantalizing. For, so for both the sort of backup and all the positive things that could be done there, for a few billion dollars, it might be worth it. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that. I don't think that's where we should be most of humans, humanity's energy, but I think it's exciting and it's also enabled, of course, by this space revolution. So obviously we brought down costs for launch, cost for rockets, cost for satellites. What's the next challenge the industry should target right now? Um, where is this challenge? Well, the next thing that I think is most exciting is actually the combination of space and, and uh, machine learning. So that has huge fruit in its future. This is true, of course, of many industries that the artificial intelligence and machine learning Ma- coming makes everything in. better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the potential here is is also true. Um, so, for example, and I'll give you just a couple. Um, our imagery, you know, we our first mission as an organization was image the whole planet every day. The next mission we've described as queerable Earth, basically indexing everything in every picture. Uh, that we get down. This is a house, this is a tree, this is a car, this is a road, this is a plane, this is a train, whatever it is. And then we build up an index of what's on the earth over time. Well, then that becomes searchable. Um, you can just say, how many trains are there in Germany? What is their average velocity? You know, what is the number of buildings in Munich? Uh, give me a plot of that over time. Tell me where the new ones are. Um, you know, in uh, uh, deforestation, where are the new trees in the Amazon? Don't show me the pictures. Just give me the latitude and longitude of the trees that went down between this day and last month. And you, those sort of things should be queryable. So I liken Planet's Next Step, which is the merge of space and AI, it as being a, it's a bit like Google indexed the internet and made it searchable. We're indexing the earth and making it searchable. Mm-hmm. And that has tremendous power. Um, so I think it's this, and, and other uh, applications the same. People are also talking about using AI to design spacecraft that you launch this um, uh, basically raw materials then you have a 3D printer in orbit that hmm. prints elaborate structures. Yeah, there's Reason, a company called Made in Space, for example, correct. that does yeah. it. Yeah. I think this is extremely exciting because mm-hmm. in principle, it's a bit of a longer term thing, but it's really exciting because the um, uh, yeah, you, all of the design of a spacecraft is about the launch because the launch is really violent. We have to have 200G shock loads. So our pretty delicate little satellites with their telescopes that are exquisite optics have to survive a 200 is equivalent of dropping our little bread box size satellite one or two meters up onto a marble floor and you never want to drop an optic <laughs> like that and yet they have to survive that and stay in focus and all this other stuff mm-hmm. that is a very violent so we have to build these very strong structures 
Whereas in principle, once you're in orbit, there's no forces at all. And so you could build much bigger structures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But how do you get the stuff? So if you had 3D printing and this cool. launching, yeah. object, you could build much bigger objects that have very flimsy structures once they're in orbit. Mm-hmm. So lots of other things come to the fore. But I think the most exciting near term is machine learning and its application to mm-hmm. the big data sets that we have coming down from space. We already have like, and this is probably just being me being from Germany and Germans and Europeans caring so much about their privacy. We already have like talking about Google and making everything searchable, a mm-hmm. huge debate around privacy, yep. surveillance, which I think you think in with your ethics boards or as like this somebody who's like at the front of this development is thinking, must be thinking a lot about. So how how do you think about the implications of this technology for things like privacy? Yeah. Um Happy to speak to that. I mean, for, roughly speaking, not there's not much implications because our satellite data cannot see people. We are 500 kilometers away. We're you know further than from Munich to Berlin, and we're taking a picture with a little telescope that's 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters in size. We can take print. We can just about see a tree. It's already a mar- remarkable that we can see a tree at that distance. But maybe I don't want to other people to know that I just cut down my tree in my garden. Well, I mean that potentially you could argue is not a private matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just like uh, smoking, you know, we thought it was a private matter, but it wasn't. It was hurting everyone else. Uh, when you cut down your tree, it's not quite your private matter anymore. Actually, it hurts everyone uh, mm-hmm. when you cut down your tree. So, um, and I, so I think this is very. And, you know, quite distinctly different from, say, drones, which are at a resolution that you can see people. You can fly over the backyard and see them sunbathing. This mm-hmm. is not in that territory. We couldn't mm. see that and because of the distance. I'm not saying there's no implications because we can, for example, see vehicles. And vehicles could be tracked in principle, right. although we're yeah. only revisiting mm. once per day. But still, you, could, you mm. can imagine it being in combination with some other data. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying it's zero. Mm-hmm. But for example, and in particular compared with drones, It's nothing because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's substantively less. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're on the front of this sort of surveillance technology. Mm-hmm. We're on the front of data that helps us to understand the planet. Mm-hmm. That's still like an ongoing debate. Absolutely. Uh, I guess. And something that Absolutely. we all have to figure out as Absolutely. a society Absolutely. Uh, as well. Absolutely. Thanks. That was great. over to our beer bench. <laughs> so now I'm having trouble to open this. Okay. What's that beer? Coffee stout aged in rye oak barrels. Is that your cup of tea? It's <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> really? Obviously, we have to say cheers. 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 <laughs> cheers. Oh, it smells awful. Seriously. <laughs> But Americans don't know how to boo beer. That actually seems an interesting one. Thing. Well, I'm not American, but uh, that's true. Where are you from again? I'm from the UK. Oh, right. I'm from yeah. Europe, like you. Oh, wow. It's, oh, 12.4. Wow, it's very 12% strong. 12% alcohol? Jesus. Strong, strong that's more beer. like a wine. <laughs> You just mentioned that you are from the UK. Did you ever did you ever dream about going to to space yourself? Um, I, I literally dreamed about it as a, as a kid, um, but uh, as I grew up, this wasn't my biggest overriding passion. I was more just interested in astronomy and understanding 
the universe. So I was very interested in astronomy when I was a kid. Uh, ever since I was about seven years old, I was excited about the planets, everything to learn about them. I was, I, and then when I was a, a, a teenager, I built a telescope because I was so interested in it, but I couldn't afford to buy one. And then, then that led me to meeting a, 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 an astronomer in the UK called Patrick Moore, who ran this a TV show called The Sky at Night on the BBC. For okay. 40 years, he was the presenter on this every every month. And I went to visit the BBC with him. And cool. It was very exciting. And then I went How old were you at that time? Uh, well, I was 15 or 16. Okay. 16, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. And then uh, uh, then went to study that passion. So I just didn't grow up. Like a lot of people have an interest in space and grow up out of it. I just didn't grow up out of it. I think okay. that's a quick summary. Interesting. And your company has office space here in the US and also in Berlin. How often do you fly back to Berlin? How do you, you know, manage to run the company through both of these yeah, locations? That's right. We have these two locations, San Francisco and Berlin. I think of them as the technology hubs of the two um, continents. Um, we'd love to establish uh, bases elsewhere too, eventually. Um, Berlin, to me, is a really interesting place. It's where I would say it's the most exciting technology hub in Europe right now. Um, you know, it used to be your London or Amsterdam, um, and now it's That's really... Not, it's not happening. Like, like, London is going down for Brexit. Oh, now. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, London screwed itself. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it, it, but, but uh, actually, when we were thinking of where to put our first office, we were this was before Brexit, and we were seriously thinking between London and, and Berlin. Now, there's no way we would even consider... And right. why would you ever put your European headquarters outside of the EU? That's just dumb, right? right. Which is one of the zillions of reasons why Brexit makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um, yeah, Berlin is a really exciting place. Um, uh, and the, you know, there's a lot of really smart, educated folks that are able to help us. So we have our mission control systems that run all of our satellites over there. We have... Um, We do uh, some of our product development there, some of our web uh, development, and uh, and then we have our European sales and partnerships opportunity uh, office there in Berlin. So talk about what other entrepreneurs in the community, in our community, can learn from running a business that's both mm -hmm. a hardware business and a software business and what you've learned about setting this up. Mm -hmm. Well, I think hardware-software intersection is extremely exciting space. Um, the... A combination of hardware makes it very hard for others to catch up if you've got real innovation like we have on the spacecraft side uh, where we've really got technology that no one else has by a long way and it would take them years to catch up so that's nice but on the other hand our business is a data business and so it has the scalability of a software platform right and so you can have the business growth that can be as fast as a software business, but have the protection of moat and, and, if you like, competitive advantage of a hardware business. So that combo is really, I think, powerful. Uh, the advice for other entrepreneurs, I've got so many, I don't know where to start. Um, but I, I think the most important is pick the technology that's going to help the world and not anything otherwise. You know, so vote with your feet on that. And I think endurance. The biggest thing that distinguishes successful entrepreneurs and unsuccessful ones is not the idea, it's not the timing, it's not the money, it's whether or not they stick to it. I mean, the number of people that said to me and my co-founders and uh, to our company in general that it's impossible to do all of this is, you know, they're, they're a dime a dozen, as they say in America. Like, they're, they're just, there's many of them. 
Mm-hmm. And you proved them wrong, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. We stuck with it mm-hmm. through thick and thin. And, mm-hmm. and what was and the hardest thing that you had to figure out on this on this way? Um, well, I I actually think that, that I mean we had various technical hurdles um, that we didn't expect. Um, I think everything took longer than I expected and cost more than I expected. Um, so. I think one piece of advice is if you think your technology is going to be two times cheaper than the current technology on the market, then I wouldn't even bother. You know, it's got to be at least a hundred x cheaper. And then if you get a hundred x, by the time you actually implement it, it might be ten x. You know, right, Meaning right. that you have to start with a big advantage because you're probably not thinking through all of the small things that those other industry just do. I mean. So I think that luckily we still have quite some legroom there, but it was only because we started with a lot of legroom. You know, there was in principle a thousand or ten thousand x reduction in or increasing capability per kilogram, as we mm-hmm. like to refer mm-hmm. it to, mm-hmm. that was possible. And then we could launch so many more little satellites. That was the, well, the, the in principle. But if it had only been Ten, if it had only been 3x, there's no way this company would have worked. Interesting. Because it ended up costing three times more, roughly speaking, mm-hmm. than we anticipated mm-hmm. to launch all the satellites mm-hmm. um, through various complexities that we didn't expect. Is there any advice that you would give to your 20-year-old self or like to the 15-year-old self that was walking around in the BBC studio about how to look at a business, about how to start a company, about Meditate. something? Meditate? Mm-hmm. You meditate? I do, and that would be my one piece of advice. Because? Um, to have a clear head, and because it, it enables you to have less stress and, and rise up a little bit to realize that you can't control everything and realize what's in your control and not in your control and things like that. What makes you optimistic about the future of entrepreneurship? Um, well, we touched a little bit on machine learning. I, I think where, how that is changing lots of industries is astonishing. Um, it also has its scary pieces too, and um, I'm, I'm, I have those concerns uh, like many people do. Um, but I also think it's just astonishing that we as a species might live through the phase where we give birth to our progeny that's smarter than us that takes over a sovereignty, which is, of course, scary, but that ultimately is a super intelligence and that that might happen and we might see some of that. Um, it just boggles my mind. You know, we've, uh, humans have been evolving uh, on this planet for millions of years and, of course, all of life for billions of years. And, and the idea that we have this phase change from genetic evolution to artificial intelligence right now and what that means and what morals and ethics they will have and what ideas they'll come up with. Because most scenarios about AI and its emergence suggest that as soon as it gets as smart as us, it will quickly get much smarter. There's a bit of a takeoff thing. We don't even know what it would mean or look like for something to be 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times or a million times smarter than us. Right. But that's so exciting, right? So, you know. Maybe uh, it will just treat us as pets or something. As that's one of the best scenarios. <laughs> that's one of the best scenarios that we have, yeah. Um, and this is why I keep on going on about animal rights. Like, mainly, 
you know, I want, if we treat our animals' pets well, maybe they will treat us better, you know? <laughs> they might look to us as an example if we treat our pets not very well, which is typical, but... Coming to the last part of this podcast, which is our either-or game. Uh, I, give you, I give you two words. You have uh -huh. to make a decision for one and explain real uh -huh. quick why you made this choice. Fine. And the first one is obviously bits or pretzels. Oh, pretzels. I, I'm a little bit hungry. It's almost lunchtime. <laughs> Moon or Mars? Moon, no brainer. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Elon Musk. Because He's further ahead. In terms of technology? Yeah. Light years. Star Trek or Star Wars? What? There's no discussion. Star Trek is a peaceful future. Star Wars is some crazy shit. <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard or Captain Kirk? Oh, Jean-Luc Picard. Because he's European? He, he, maybe I'm tricked by his British accent into thinking that he has more authority. It somehow fits the role very well. It would be my choice. I Good. Would, uh, okay, well, back me up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, beer or wine? Uh, I'm more in the beer category, but I prefer mezcal. Oh, okay. Talking or listening? Yes. You have to make a choice. <laughs> I don't like making a choice of that one. <laughs> um, well, empirically, I talk more. I wish I would listen more. So the difference between hope and reality. Follow or lead? Well, definitely lead. Next. Because? Um, you've got to change the world to what you want it to be. Dreamer or realist? Yes. I am not choosing on this one. <laughs> this is you a, have to. No, I'm, I'm well. not. I refuse. So... <laughs> This is one that people uh, get wrong. You can dream and be idealistic when you set your goals and you can be realistic when you execute towards them. We had a big dream at Planet. Image the whole world every day. We set ourselves very specific steps to get there. Launch a tech demo satellite, uh, you know, then build these ground stations, then build a business around da, 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 da. It wasn't like those two things are not antithetical. So... I'm not choosing that one. Chaos or order? Order. Security. Conquer or compromise? Oh, compromise. Because uh, uh, I want to get along with everyone. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's, good to, that's good to learn about you. <laughs> well, thanks for no coming no on problem. the Bits and Persons podcast. <laughs> it was, it was fun. a huge pleasure. Thanks <laughs> Thank very <you>. much. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please let us know how we do and write to us at podcast at bitsandpretzels.com. Don't miss the next episode of this podcast and subscribe to our media newsletter at bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Again, that's bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Stay safe and see you next Wednesday. Bitsandpretzels.